0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. This morning we're going to get uh, into Matthew chapter 10. Actually, we're going to be in a lot of the Gospels in the book of Acts. Uh, the the idea we're looking at today is so prevalent that I had to look at about a dozen different passages this week to piece these concepts together but before we get into uh, the passage I want to start off with a little parable okay this is a modern day parable it is not based on my own personal experience although it could be but uh, this is how the parable goes so there was a church and the church was doing a construction project. They were expanding their building. And the pastor of the church, like every pastor, was trying to save money. And so he went to the foreman of the construction team one day and he said, you know, is there anything I can do to help you out? You know, I'm a pastor. I only work one day a week. Is there anything I can do to help you out that would maybe save us a little bit of money? And the foreman of the construction team said, well, you know, we're, we need 100 two-by-fours, 100 boards cut to six feet in length. If you could cut 100 two-by-fours into six feet in length, that would save us some time. So this is a two-by-four that's six feet tall. So the pastor got out his tape measure, and he measured a two-by-four, and he cut it to six feet in length. And he found that working with a tape measure was I don't know, a little too hard for him because he went to school so he wouldn't have to do those types of things. So he decided, well, I already have one board that's six feet long. I'm gonna lay that six foot long board on top of the next board, draw my line, and cut it. And then I'll just take that board and put it on the next one, and that board and put it on the next one, and that's what I'll do, and I won't have to deal with a high-tech tape measure. And so he did that, and he did 100 boards. Here's what that pastor didn't know. Every time that you cut a piece of wood with a circular saw, you are removing one-eighth of an inch of that piece of wood. It's called kerf. It's the uh, material that is removed in the process of uh, sawing. And so the first piece of wood was six feet long, but the second piece of wood was five feet, five feet, 11 and seven-eighths inches. And then the next piece was an nth of an eighth shorter and the next piece was an nth of an eighth shorter so that no two pieces of wood were the same length. In fact, by the time he got to the 100th piece of wood, it was 5 feet long. And he didn't know it because he's a pastor and he knows Greek and Hebrew but not basic measurements. So, this is what he started with. This is what he ended with. See the difference? Okay, so the problem he had was he never went back to the original standard. He measured this piece by that piece and that piece by this piece and he kept comparing one piece to another piece but he never went back to the original measurement. Now, we do that when we're trying to get a concept of what it means to follow Jesus. This is how we do that. We have conversations like, oh, I read a book by uh, Rick Warren, and his church does that. Or well, did you hear what the church down the street is doing? Maybe we should do that. Oh, my, my cousin is, is a Christian, and they read this book, so I'm going to do that. And they don't do this, so I'm not going to do this. And the church I grew up in did it this way, and the church I used to go to did it that way. And we end up comparing church to church. We end up comparing Christian to Christian Christian, instead of comparing church to New Testament and Christian to New Testament. So the New Testament is the tape measure that we're supposed to measure the Christian life by. But we usually just measure it by what we've seen in other people's lives. Well, I don't know, I've never seen anyone else do this stuff, so I'm not gonna do it. Or I have seen other people do this stuff, so I am going to do it. Uh, The person that discipled me did it, the person that led me to the Lord did it, or they didn't do it, so I'm going to do it or not do it based on what I saw in that person's life, not based on what I see on the pages of the New Testament. We read books, we go to seminars, we go to concerts. It's incredible to me that we've made Christianity or following Jesus into something that is full of things that are not in the Bible and absent of the things that are in the Bible. So we're gonna look at, we're gonna go back to the tape measure, we're gonna get out the measuring rod, we're gonna look at how Jesus made disciples, how he selected them, what he sent them out to do, and we're gonna go back to the original standard. You know, there's a word we throw throw around sometimes when we're talking about the Bible, we talk about the canon of scripture. Have you ever heard that phrase, the canon of scripture? Canon, in that context, we're not talking about something that you blast cannonballs out of. It's based on a Hebrew word, which just means the measuring rod. When we say scripture is the canon, we mean this is the measuring rod. This is what we judge things by. If it stands up to this, it's good. If it doesn't stand up to that, it's bad. When we don't measure things, when we don't go back to the original standard, the original measurement, we end up short, just like this five-foot-long board, So we're going to go back to the original instance where Jesus is selecting disciples and what he's training them to do and how he's sending them out. Does that make sense that we should go back to this instead of have a survey of like of 100 churches in Philadelphia, they use this discipleship program or read these books. Let's just go back to the New Testament, specifically the gospels and see how they do it. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 10 Verses 1 through 8, this will be up on the screen, you can follow along if you'd like. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these, the first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. And there is additional instruction about how they're going to go into these cities, but you can read that on your own time. There's only so many verses I can get to today. So this portion of scripture has two specific points that I want to draw our attention to. First is, how did he select these 12 disciples or as they're called in this passage, 12 apostles. You know, the 12 disciples and the 12 apostles are essentially the same people. There's like one or two that we have some questions about, like, you know, and then there's a guy, Matthias, that comes in and replaces Judas Iscariot. So there's a tiny little bit of discussion, but for the most part, over 90% of them is overlapped. The 12 disciples are the 12 apostles, okay? And so uh, how, did he, how did he go about identifying these men and calling them to himself? And then what did he have them do? Like, uh, which K-Love channel did they listen to? Which Christian concerts did he send them to? You know, what kind of tea and coffee did they drink when they had their chicken soup for the Christian soul devotionals? You can probably tell. I'm about to get fired today, I think. I, I'm prepared. So... Um, Jesus selects his disciples. If you can throw up for me on the screen, I have a slide that uh, identifies these 12 disciples here. So I don't have information about all of them, but the New Testament does provide a little bit of biographical information about a few of these disciples. So for instance, Simon Peter and Andrew in the top left, Simon Peter and Andrew were brothers, okay? They were brothers. And if you read the story in Matthew 4, when Jesus calls them, they're fishermen, and they're fishing, and... Jesus just walks up and all he says is, follow me. Two words and they drop everything and follow him. And I, that story has always struck me as like, what was it about Jesus? Did he, you know, like, did he have like hot dogs or like what was happening that they were okay dropping everything? Did they not like being fishermen? I mean, why was it that he just said two words and they dropped everything, left their career, and followed him? Well, there's actually more to the story of Andrew and Simon Peter. So Andrew and Simon Peter are brothers, but in the book of John in chapter one, Andrew was already a disciple of John the Baptist. He'd been following John the Baptist around. It says in John chapter one that when John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, look, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, two people overheard that. One of them was Andrew. So Andrew, it says, again, this is in John chapter one, Andrew actually spent an entire day with Jesus. And it says Andrew went and got his brother, Simon Peter, and went and introduced him to Jesus. Jesus. So when Jesus showed up to them fishing and said, follow me, that was not the first time that they had seen Jesus. That's not the first conversation they'd had with Jesus. It's not the first interaction that they'd had with Jesus. So when Jesus says, follow me, there's already a relationship there that he's inviting them into. You almost wonder if uh, Andrew and Simon Peter were hoping that Jesus would invite them into following him. So that's a little bit about Simon Peter and Andrew. There's also two other brothers named James and John. Their dad's name is Zebedee. So we don't know their last name, but I call them Zebedeesans. Uh, they were also fishermen, and they immediately left their nets. And not only did they leave their nets, they left old Zebedee in the boat. They were fishing with their dad. Jesus came and said, follow me, and they dropped everything. We don't know much else about the backstory of James and John, but they were brothers. There's a disciple named Philip, again, Philip only receives this two-word invitation, follow me. That's what Jesus says to basically all of them. It's just the same thing. Follow me, follow me, follow me. That's what he says every time he calls someone, follow me. Well, when Philip decides to follow Jesus, he brings another person with him named Nathaniel Nathanael's not one of these 12 disciples, but Philip, is, he's very early in his following of Jesus and he's already bringing other people with him. I mean, look at how... Andrew brings Simon Peter and introduces him to Jesus. Look at how Philip brings Nathaniel with him and introduces him to Jesus. There's uh, Thomas. We don't know much about Thomas other than after Jesus was resurrected. Thomas had some doubts and Thomas basically said, yeah, I'll believe Jesus is resurrected when I can see the hole in his side and put my finger in the wound that he has. And so a few days later, the resurrected Jesus did appear to Thomas and he said, would you like to see the wound? Would you like to put your finger in this and feel it and see it? And at that point, Thomas repented and believed that Jesus was actually resurrected. Matthew was a tax collector. I've referenced Matthew a couple times recently in in recent weeks. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was kind of a sellout. Matthew was a Jewish man who sold out to the Roman government to work for them collecting absorbent taxes from the Jewish people. So he was kind of a sellout. people kind of didn't like him uh, because he was taking from his own people to give to the government that was oppressing them. And so Matthew was not popular among his people. Now, I just want to read two verses about Matthew following Jesus This is in Matthew chapter 9. So as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. Okay, that's Matthew 9, 9. Jesus finds a tax collector and says, follow me, and he does. The very next verse, verse 10, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold... Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. All of a sudden, we're not one tax collector, but many tax collectors. Who do you think made the bridge for Jesus to get to the point where now he's ministering to many tax collectors? Probably Matthew, right? I mean, we only know of one tax collector that Jesus encountered at at this point in the story. It's Matthew. All of a sudden, Jesus is now surrounded by tax collectors. Either Matthew introduced Jesus to his tax collector buddies or he introduced his tax collector buddies to Jesus. And that is the way that discipleship often happens. And I hope you're seeing the pattern of uh, uh, Andrew and his brother Simon Peter and uh, Philip and Nathaniel and now Matthew and the tax collectors. This disciple making process flows along relational lines. So far, none of them are interacting with strangers. Now, we get there eventually, but so far in the story, it's all invitation uh, of family and friends and coworkers to come follow Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a principle here in Matthew's experience that he's the first tax collector, but, but one verse later, there's many tax collectors. When we first started this church, we just had a couple people attending a Bible study, and a man came who was attending, he was a, uh, in AA, he was an Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was the uh, first person I had met in Philly who was part of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he brought some of his friends to church, uh, to Bible study a week later, and they were from Alcoholics Anonymous. And then they started bringing more friends Bible study, and they were from Alcoholics Anonymous, and within one year, we had over 100 people attending AA meetings in this church. I don't know that our church would have got off the ground if it wasn't for this spider web of Alcoholics Anonymous people that knew each other, and the word about Jesus and the word about the church spread through a network that was already established. We didn't create the network. The network already existed. That is uh, a principle of missional ministry is you don't have to create the networks. You discover the networks that already exist. And you introduce Jesus into the network. It's so, much hard, it's so hard to create a network. It's better to break into the networks that already exist, share Jesus, and watch Jesus just kind of take over a community or a network of people. And so that happened here. We started with one AA uh, member, and then one verse later, we have 100 AA members. You know what I mean? And so this happens nowadays and it can continue to happen as we do ministry. We have Simon the Zealot who is one of the disciples. I've mentioned Simon the Zealot and I've kind of contrasted him with Matthew, the tax collector. Simon the Zealot was kind of like a militia member. He, he kind of wanted to violently overthrow the government. He, was believed to a, he belonged to a group of people called Zealots. That phrase Zealot is not just saying that he was kind of bubbly and in your face There was a group of people called the Zealots. He was one of them. And he wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus put him in a group with Matthew who sold out to the Roman government. And I bet they got along together great. I bet that they were Facebook friends and liked everything the other one posted. So I think you all know the subtext of what I'm getting at there. There was also Judas Iscariot. This is fascinating Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples, and every indication from the Gospels is that Jesus knew what he was getting into when he invited Judas Iscariot. We know that Judas Iscariot was not just one of the disciples. He was the guy that held the money bag. He was the treasurer, and he held the money bag, and it says that Jesus used to like to help himself to the money. In fact, uh, there was a woman that worshipped Jesus by taking a costly vial of perfume she broke the vial and put the perfume on Jesus's feet and Judas was like you don't want to like sell that and use the money for ministry and it says in the passage Judas didn't really care about ministry he wanted that money in the bag cuz he could get from it and so Jesus knew though that Judas was compromised i mean every indication is that Jesus knew someone was going to betray him and he knew that it was Judas early on in the process Yet he invited Judas in. And Judas Judas betrays Jesus for money, 30 pieces of silver. He betrays Jesus and ultimately he regrets it so much that he ends up taking his own life and Judas is replaced as an apostle by a man named Matthias. And that story is in the beginning of Acts. But these are the uh, 12 original disciples. Now, just a little note real quick. You might, depending on the passages that you're reading, You might find Thaddeus, or you might find a second guy named Judas. Two Gospels talk about Thaddeus, two Gospels talk about Judas, the son of James. They're probably just the same person, but because, just like, see how there's two Simons? They each have something that distinguishes them. You have Simon Peter and Simon the Zalot. There were two Judases. So there was Judas Iscariot, and then probably the other Judas went by Thaddeus. When I was in fourth grade, there were two kids in my class named Jim. So I had to be James, and he got to be Jim. And I was like, oh, man. But, but that's, I mean, that's what you do when two people share a name. One of them kind of gets a nickname. So probably Thaddeus is just Judas, the son of James, went by a different name so he could be distinguished from Judas Iscariot. I would want to be distinguished from Judas Iscariot too. Wouldn't you? Not a lot of little boys being named Judas nowadays. Okay. So these are the 12 disciples. Notice how Jesus, he invites them. He says, follow me. There's an invitation there. And that that invitation results in like a, a networking or a spider webbing into their families, into their relationships that they already had. They will eventually follow Jesus and go begin to share the gospel with strangers, but it has an immediate effect on their relationships that they have in the moment, and that is how Jesus calls disciples. And that there's some a reality there for us that we can't just focus all of our disciple-making efforts on leapfrogging the relationships we do have so that we can go reach strangers that we've never met. There's a place for that, of course, but don't leapfrog the relationships that you already have. Don't leapfrog your family uh, in order to get elsewhere. Don't leapfrog your uh, neighbors. Don't leapfrog other places, uh, people that you know, your coworkers, your neighbors, so that you can get to strangers. I know that sometimes it's more comfortable to try to reach out to people you don't know because well if they reject you it's not a big deal but if your family and your friends reject you that's really gonna hurt. I get that, I understand that. So it's important then that we establish relationships and trust and intimacy and the ability to have conversations and take, take opportunities without forcing opportunities uh, to share the gospel with people that we already have relationships with. Now I wanna move on to not just who these 12 men were, but what did Jesus tell them to do? What did he train them to do, okay? Um, This is the part that might get me fired. So let me just read verses uh, one and seven and eight again. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Okay, so what did he give them authority to do? Cast out demons, (laughs) heal the sick, right? All right, so verses seven and eight. So what did he send them to do? Go to the best concerts. Read the most bland devotionals. Listen to the worst music. He says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. Now, you guys already know the story. Did they take that as hyperbole and metaphor, or did they go do exactly what they were told to do? They went and did exactly as they were told to do, right? They actually went and cast out demons, healed the sick, preached, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. In fact, in one of the stories where they went and did this, the the 12, they went out, they cast out demons, healed the sick, did all this miraculous stuff. When they came back, they were so hyped up, Jesus said, calm down, calm down. Don't get so happy that uh, demons submit to you in my name, but you should be happy that you're saved, that your name is written in the book of life, right? That your name is recorded for heaven. So, and then, But then what happens? They go into one city. I was talking to my wife about this last night. They come back from this little short-term mission trip where they're casting out demons and healing the sick. They come back and they go into a new city and that city totally rejects them. And the disciples say, hey, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven on the city? And I'm just like, what did they see? that made them think they could do that. You know, like, how did they get it? None of us would say that because none of us think we can do that. But these disciples, whatever they saw, whatever they experienced, made them think they could start calling down fire from heaven. Now Jesus has to correct them there and he's like, yeah, we're, we're not about that. We're not here to, for judgment. We're here for redemption. Moses is gonna judge the people. God is gonna judge the people. We're here on a rescue mission. And so, but I'm, I'm just like, I don't know what they experienced, but they came back so hyped up that Jesus had to calm them down on two separate occasions. They had experienced so much spiritual power, they actually did not have the character to sustain it in a way because they started wanting to use the spiritual power for vengeance and, and vindication. But so Jesus sends them out, and I'm gonna break this down into four things. He says first, Preach the kingdom. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he, he doesn't just tell them what to, uh, to preach. He tells them what to preach. He doesn't give them a blanket like just, just go preach. Just figure it out, come up with some stuff. He actually tells them the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is now on its third generation. You know, John the Baptist's message was repent for the kingdom of his heaven is at near. And then John the Baptist died and Jesus picked up the baton and Jesus' message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then what does Jesus teach his disciples to say? The kingdom of heaven is near and I think implied in that is so repent. You know, the people that they were reaching thought the kingdom of heaven is far off. Oh man, God's not really active. His redemption is not close. His salvation is not near. Like God is absent And so what is the message? No, he's near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right next to you. You could reach out and touch it. The kingdom of heaven is so close. All you have to do is repent. If you would just change your thoughts, change your actions, change your beliefs, you would experience the kingdom of heaven. It's so close. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This to me is still, it's invitational. It's like, uh, all you gotta do is repent and you'll experience the kingdom. It's not a bunch of hoops to jump through. It's not far away, it's not far off, it's near. Just repent, just turn from what you've been doing and you'll experience the kingdom of heaven. So that's the message that they're sent out to preach. And how will they prove that that message is truly from God? They're gonna prove it through what we would call signs and wonders. In verse eight it says, heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse the lepers. So I'm gonna just, for today's purpose, clump, heal the sick, and cleanse the lepers together. But I'm gonna treat raise the dead as a separate category. So he tells them to heal the sick, including leprosy. I think, probably if you've been reading the Bible, you're familiar that leprosy is a a common condition. It's really, uh, the leprosy that they're talking about is your nerves becoming dull. And because your nerves were dull, you would get injured all the time. So like you would step on a nail and not know it and you would just get an infection in your foot which would lead to gangrene and maybe you would lose a foot over that or you would lean over a hot stove or a fire and get burns and you wouldn't feel it. It was really a numbness was the issue and then the consequence of the numbness was you'd get all these injuries and not know it and then you'd get infections or you know things would get really bad and so you would lose a foot or lose a hand or get an infection or get gangrene. And it says in the Old Testament, you're actually not allowed to go near those people, those lepers. Jesus is telling them to go heal the lepers. In the Old Testament, if a clean person and an unclean person came into contact, they were both made unclean. But with Jesus, when a clean person and an unclean came together, both were made clean. You understand? Like there's a shift in the New Testament where all of a sudden the ability to heal is stronger than the ability to infect. This would be like, you know, like I know we're all nervous about the coronavirus and like, you know, one sick person can make a whole church sick or one sick person can make a whole family sick. What if one, what if the way it worked was one healthy person could walk into a room full of coronavirus patients and they all were healed? So that's how it was working with leprosy. One whole healthy person Jesus could go into a crowd of lepers and all of a sudden he's not sick they're all well that's the power of the new covenant which covenant do we live under the new one right so this is also true of sin it is possible that One sinful person can turn a whole group of righteous people into sin, but it is also possible in the new covenant that one righteous person can lead a whole group of sinful people into righteousness if the spirit of the new covenant lives in them. Does that make sense? So, well, that's what the Bible means when it says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's what it's talking about. So Jesus tells them, I want you to go heal lepers, and I want you to heal the sick, and they do. They pray for sick people, and gosh darn it, they get well. All of a sudden, now there's crowds of people coming to them because you know, the medical profession at that point was limited, still limited today, but it was even more limited back then. And so people are desperate for healing. They're desperate for health. We read of a woman who was sick for 12 years, and she, spent, she was bleeding internally for 12 years. She could not stop bleeding. And it says she spent all of her money on doctors and got nowhere. And then she just touched Jesus and was healed. People were desperate for this kind of stuff. This was actually meeting a real need. It was, it, this is not some arbitrary random thing that Jesus picked out of the air. He was meeting a need that people had when he commissioned 12 disciples to go heal the sick. And it's hard to argue with that, right? I mean, you're sick, someone prays for you, then you're healed. Hard to argue with that, isn't it? Now, he continues, there's not just the uh, healing of the sick, but also the casting out of demons. This is also in verse 8, cast out demons. It actually says in verse 1 that he gave him authority to do that, to cast out demons. So demons are real, okay? Um, I know not everyone in the world believes that. Um, And some Christians don't believe demons are real, or they believe they're real, but they're distant and not active. Demons are real. Uh, you If you would go to visit Christians in almost any other part of the world, they would have a much higher awareness and understanding of evil spirits than we do because they, they, you know, we've been kind of lulled into sleep by like the enlightenment and like scientific revolution. Like we, we try to, we, we put way more uh, emphasis on like germs bacteria and virus than we do on evil spirits. And of course I'm not like germs, bacteria, and virus, that's all real. Okay. But so are demons. We don't have to pick one or the other. Demons are real. There are things that germs, viruses, and bacteria don't explain. And demons are real. When Satan rebelled against God, he took about a third of the angels with him, and those angels are this like organized army spread over the earth, tormenting people. My personal opinion is it says in Hebrews that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. So a demon is probably that flipped on its head. Not a ministering spirit sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, but a tormenting spirit sent to attack those who will inherit salvation. They've taken their assignment and flipped it. So they're, they're going against people that God has a plan for. They're going against Christians. They're going against churches. And they are real. And as followers of Jesus, we need to know how to combat them. Now, not everything that happens is a demon. If you sleep through your alarm, that's probably not a demon. No, if your pants don't fit, that's probably more devil's food cake than the devil. That's a spontaneous joke. Very good. Um, You know, like, we can't blame everything on the devil. But we have to have an awareness that some things, uh, they they go beyond description. There's just no way to deal with it. And we have to know how to handle those things. We have to know how to cast, we should be capable of getting a person free when they are under demonic oppression. Now, when I was a youth pastor uh, and I was given 30 or 40 teenagers, I was given charge over 30 or 40 teenagers I read this passage from Matthew 10 and I said, we're just going to do this stuff. Uh, Because I knew that 90% of teenagers that are in the church leave the church once they graduate high school. And I wasn't going to let that happen with my youth group. And it's been 13 years and about 75% of those kids are still walking with the Lord. Some of them are pastors. Some of them are missionaries. And I was just depressed this week to see in my seminary class, I recognize one of the names, it's one of the girls, that was a student in my youth group is one of my classmates in seminary. And she's smarter than me, which I knew. Uh, But 75% of those kids are still walking with Jesus because we taught them this stuff. When there was an altar call on Sunday morning, I grabbed two teenagers and I said, go pray for people at the front. There was a time when we had a young girl in our youth ministry who was dealing with a demonic issue. She was being attacked by demonic presence. And I gathered a bunch of teenagers around her. And we went through a you know, brief process of removing the spirit from her. There were 17 of us in the room. We cast out this evil spirit from this girl we said, you have to go in Jesus' name, and we heard footsteps Footsteps run down the hallway. We opened the door to see who was there, no one. We all heard this demon getting out of the building. We, and, we, and to this point, all 17 of them are like, uh, you know, like they all heard it with their own ears. And I've confirmed that story over and over with people that were present that we all heard that. And so you have to you have to know how to do this stuff. This is what Jesus taught his disciples to do. And I hope you're seeing this, this pattern is becoming clear. Like this is not some peripheral thing. It's actually the main thing he taught them to do. Preach, heal the sick, cast out demons. And so he sends these 12 apostles out. It says in Matthew 10:1, it calls them disciples. But in the very next verse, they're called apostles. Okay. Um, I think that's important because there's this tricky teaching that, oh, well, you know, the apostles, they lived in this unique time and, you know, they did things that were special to that time and we don't do those things anymore. We don't do what the, you know, the, the 12 apostles, that's unique. We don't do that anymore. Okay, well, if I'm not supposed to do what the 12 apostles did, then who am I supposed to learn from? Well, you want to learn from the disciples, okay, the disciples are the apostles. If I'm supposed to learn about discipleship from the disciples, then that's what I'm gonna learn. And it's not unique. Jesus didn't just pick these 12 guys and send them out and say, go do these things. In uh, Luke chapter nine, he sends the 12 out. This is the same story that I read from Matthew. Matthew. In Luke chapter nine, verse one, he says, he called the 12 together and he gave them a power and authority over all demons and the healed diseases." Does that sound familiar? And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Okay, that's the 12. The very next chapter, Luke chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city to heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So that's not just for the 12, but he picks 70 others. So now we're in 82 people that Jesus, in his first couple years of ministry, has now equipped to send them out to heal the sick and to preach and to cast out demons. It doesn't just happen for those 82 people. In Mark chapter 16, it actually says that these signs will accompany followers. It says in Matthew 16, these signs will accompany those who have believed, they will attend Christian concerts. They will read vague and shallow devotionals. They will act like they don't know Jesus. Oh, no, sorry. I'm just paraphrasing uh, life. It says, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. These are the signs, not just for the 12, not just for the 70, it says these are are the signs for those who believe, okay? These are the signs for those who believe. Now, since this gets abused, the picking up snakes and the drinking deadly poison is not a prescription for you to go do those things, okay? That's where those like weird snake handling churches come in, they think that this is, uh a test like go do these. no this is saying that like if someone's trying to persecute you by poisoning you you'll survive there's a story in acts chapter 28 where paul's making a fire and he's bit by a snake and everyone says karma's got him and paul shakes the snake off and survives and they see that and they're like tell us about your god so that's what this means: picking up snakes and drinking poison it doesn't mean you know go home and have a cobra and arsenic, uh, arsenic, for lunch. Arsenic, arsenine is what Kendra always calls me. Um, don't go home and have cobra and arsenic for lunch. It's saying that if someone's trying to harm you, God will protect you, and that will draw people's attention to God's protective power in your life. But these are the signs that will follow. It wasn't just for, for them, look in the book of Acts. Doesn't this kind of activity spread out through the church? Doesn't Paul start doing these types of things? Isn't Timothy and uh, some of the other characters in Acts, aren't they participating in some of these acts of miraculous power and demonstrations of the Holy Spirit? I mean, aren't we told in James chapter five, if someone is sick, gather the elders to pray for healing? Not to just comfort them and say, oh, well, we'll pray that God gives you strength, which that's fine too, but like, we're supposed to anoint people with oil and pray for healing, and it says because a prayer offered in faith is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective when it's offered in faith. So this is not just for the 12 disciples. It's not just for the 70. It's not just for the book of Acts. This is for us now. I can't find anywhere in the New Testament, man, I've looked. I cannot find anywhere in the New Testament that indicates that this period of time is done. But I think these things continue. Are there still sick people? Are there still demonized people? Does the gospel still need to be proclaimed? Okay, so I guess we have something to do, right? Uh, I want to read a couple quotes real quick from some of the more significant uh, spiritual writers in my life. The first is from... Albert Benjamin Simpson, who was a pastor in New York City in the late 1800s and early 1900s, referring to Mark 16, the whole, these signs will follow those that believe. This is what he says Here's the commission given to them. What right do we have to preach the one without the other? What right have we to hold back any part from the perishing world? What right have we to go to the unbelieving world to demand their acceptance of our message without these signs following? What right have we to explain their absence from our ministry by trying to eliminate them from God's word or consign them to an obsolete past? This is what A.B. Simpson's saying. We don't have a right to say, believe my message, but I can't prove it. Believe my message, because if they read the Bible, right? If we got them to read the Bible and it said, these signs accompany those who believe, you don't have those signs, so I don't have to believe your message. Even Jesus said that his works of power validated his message and that if he did not do those works of power, they were excused from believing him. And so I'm I'm sad to say the world has an excuse for why they don't believe because we're not doing what the Bible says the believers would do. We're not proving it. We're not doing the, the... Acts of power, the signs and the wonders. And so, no wonder people don't believe. This next quote is from A.W. Tozer, because I haven't quoted him in two weeks. So, he says, If we have the anointing of the Spirit and His presence in our lives, we should be able to do what Jesus, the Son of Man, was able to do in His earthly ministry. Jesus Christ, in the power and authority of His Spirit, anointed humanity, stilled the waves, quieted the winds, healed the sick, Gave sight to the blind, exercised complete authority over demons, and raised the dead. We, we have access to the same Holy Spirit that Jesus relied on. And if you have a hard time swallowing that, okay, well then at the very least we have access to the same Holy Spirit that Peter relied on, Paul relied on. I mean, do we need to go through the whole New Testament? Because Jesus is not the only person that did these things. He's our model, He's our example, and He's the reason we can do these things. But Paul copied Jesus, Peter copied Jesus. We should be copying Jesus, we should be doing what Jesus did. There's no excuse for us to push these things off to another time or to another people. About two years ago, I was in a meeting with about 50 pastors. And we were talking about this concept, you know, like supernatural things, spiritual things. You know, we were talking about this. And one of the pastors stood up and he was very polite when he said this, but, you know, he was being honest and he said, you know, the people that like talk about demons and cast out demons and heal the sick, you know, they're weird. (laughs) He said, they're weird, but we need them. I think that was his way of being like apologetic. You know, like, you know, those, those ones that cast out demons and heal the sick and believe for resurrections, you know, they're weird, but we need them in the church, which I think was his, his attempt at like healing. And so I stood up less politely and I said, you know, from their perspective, I think it might be that the ones who don't pray for the sick and don't cast out demons are the weird ones. I mean, why would you think, if you read the New Testament, why would you think that the ones who cast out demons and heal the sick are the weird ones? That's only weird if you've been in church too long. You know what I mean? It's not weird based on this. So I said, because they can't fire me, I said, I think it's weird that most of our churches have gone two or three years without baptizing a person. That seems weird to me. I think it's weird that 90% of the churches in our denomination are shrinking. I don't see that in the Bible. That seems weird to me. I think it's weird that most of our churches are one race. That's what seems weird to me. Not the stuff in the Bible. That seems normal. That seems like what we should be aspiring to and training people to do. Okay, so I stopped there because I want to have friends, guys. (laughs) But I have so few, I choose to be an introvert because no one likes me. So now I don't think every Christian has to do all of these things every day. I don't do them every day. But what I do think is that most Christians don't do any of it ever, you know? We, I, I don't think you need to go home, okay, i got to get six demons out today <laughs> and heal four sick people. No, don't do that. Don't put that pressure on yourself. That's ridiculous. But I am saying, man, if, if, if you've never prayed for a sick person, you you got to start. It's got to be in your tool bag. If you've never been a part of helping a person get free from a demon, you got to I'm, you don't have to do that every day, all the time, but like, it's gotta be somewhere. And, and also, if you have not shared the gospel with people, if you have not preached the kingdom of heaven is at, is at hand, if you have not called people to repentance, you gotta start looking for opportunities where God has put you in that position to, to preach that message. Is it gonna happen every day, all day? No, it's not. Some days you just have to do laundry. You know, some days you just have to make dinner for the kids or something like But. please don't follow Jesus for 10 years, 15 years, and have never done the stuff that Jesus taught the disciples to do. Because this is what he prepared them to do. This is what he sent them out to do. Um, And get trained in how to do this stuff. I know, like, it's intimidating. How am I supposed to do this? About 10 or 12 times over the years, our church has offered training on this. And so this week, through the Church Center app and through our Facebook group, I am gonna I went way back into the archives and pulled out the recordings of all of that. And I'm gonna post, well, not all of them, but three or four of the trainings that we've provided on how to pray for the sick, how to deal with the demonized, and we're gonna post those, and you can go back and listen to those. But So once you've listened to it, find opportunities to apply it. I think that this is what we need as we head into... The next couple years in the United States, the reality is people do not know what to believe anymore. Truth is out the window, it seems like. We don't know what to believe, who to believe. And so if we try to debate or argue Jesus into someone's heart, I just, I mean, I'm not saying it never works, but I wouldn't put that as your number one strategy. You want to understand, like something we call it apologetics. You need to have an, a, like a concept of that and an understanding of that. But people are so apprehensive to believe other people nowadays. But you know what they can't deny? I was blind, but now I can see. You know, I was sick. You prayed for me. Now I'm healthy. I was plagued by a dark being. And now it's gone because you prayed in the name of Jesus. I went to psychics. I went to this person. I went to that person. I went to a counselor. No one could help me. You prayed in the name of Jesus and it left. I believe that because it's my experience. I don't need anyone to break down an old language. I don't need anyone to quote a dead philosopher. I've experienced it, so now I believe it. And I think that's the next phase we're heading into is we're going to have to start showing people stuff. We're going to have to start uh, getting in situations where people have now seen with their own eyes what the power of Jesus is. And you know, that also means like healing of marriages and reconciliation of relationships, but let's not throw out the stuff Jesus taught the disciples to do. Praying for the sick, casting out demons, preaching the gospel, even, something I have not touched on much today, the raising of the dead. I have not figured that one out yet, so I'm going to leave that for another day. I do believe in it. I think it's real. I just you know have not seen it yet, but I believe it despite having not seen it. And I believe it because I read it. And Jesus said, blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. So I'm believing for that. So I want to pray for four different groups of people this morning and uh probably some of you are present in the room and some of you are watching online here are the four groups of people that i'd like to pray for first those that want to follow jesus you know that origin those original 12 disciples they heard jesus say follow me and there's a good chance that someone watching or present has not totally responded to that follow me invitation yet. So if you're hearing Jesus say to you, follow me, and you're probably hearing it as like a whisper, maybe you're hearing it out loud even, follow me, follow me like an invitation, I wanna pray for you. I also wanna pray for those of you that are feeling like a burden to share the gospel. Those of you that hear that part where Jesus says, go preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some of you that burns in you like a hot fire I want to pray for you, that you know when to pull the trigger on that, that God puts you in situations to do that. I want to pray for those of you that want to heal the sick and the dying, that you have compassion on people when they're suffering. You don't want to see them go through it. You know, sometimes compassion is contributing to their healing, not just crying alongside of them. And so I want to pray for you. And then finally, those who feel like God has called them to engage in spiritual warfare, whether it's personal or regional or whatever, uh, I want to pray for you. So those are those four groups. If you're in one of those groups, um, you can amen the portion of the prayer that's dedicated to you. Jesus, I pray for those who you are saying to today, follow me, that have never followed you, that did not understand that they could follow you, that didn't know that you were calling them to follow you, but they're, they're picking up on something that's going on inside of them right now, and they're thinking, maybe Jesus is talking to me. Maybe he is leading me on a path and you're inviting them to follow you, Lord. I pray that they would just respond with a yes, I will follow you and that they would do like Andrew and Simon Peter and James and John who dropped everything, who did not say, I'll follow you when the time is right. I'll follow you when I'm older. I'll follow you once I clean up this mess. They just dropped everything and followed you. I pray for that type of response, Jesus, that they would, even in the mess, that they wouldn't feel they need to clean up their life but that they would know that you are going to change their life and transform them, that people would respond and follow you. Lord, I pray for those who have like a a fire in their bones to share the gospel, to preach, to call people to repentance, and to let people know that the kingdom of heaven is more near and more accessible than they thought. I pray for those people to have wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would train them in knowing your word. I pray that you would give them sensitivity to know when fruit is ready to be picked, And to know when fruit is simply ready to be watered, Lord. I pray for the gardening, uh, that gardening metaphor that you use, Lord, that they would plant seeds when seeds need planted, water seeds when they need watered, and pick the fruit when it needs to be picked. Give them discernment and wisdom to know when the time is right. Lord, I pray for those that want to heal the sick and the dying that are given opportunities to pray for those whose bodies are weak, and whose bodies are hampered by disease and sickness, Jesus. You, you came to save us from sickness just as much as you came to save us from sin. And so Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for divine healing. It's your power through your sacrifice on the cross that enables our bodies to be healed. And so Lord, I pray for faith for those people that they would believe, even when it looks ridiculous to believe it, give them faith to believe that you heal the sick. And finally, Lord, for those who feel called to engage in spiritual warfare, who, who Lord, want to see people set free from tormenting uh, spirits, from people who want to see regions like the atmosphere in a city cleared out so that people can think clearly and hear from you clearly and not be deafened by the demonic static that happens in the atmosphere, Lord. I pray that those people would have boldness. Jesus, take away fear and anxiety. And I pray, Lord, that they would know their identity in you and that they could minister from that place. I pray for all of these groups of people because this is what you sent the disciples out to do and these are the signs you said would follow those who believe. So I pray for these in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, I just want to ask you this week, keep your eyes and your ears open for these opportunities, okay? All right. God bless you. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.